You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Ben Hunt is with Second Foundation Partners. He is the publisher of the blog Epsilon Theory, uh, one that I follow. And if you're not already following, you will be after this conversation. I invited him to be on the podcast and he is our guest today. Ben, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Well, thank you, Chuck. It's great to be here. I woke up one day. I don't even remember what day it was, but I woke up one day and I realized that when it came to even managing my modest little IRA fund, mm-hmm. that I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and that <laughs> these forces that, you know, as smart as I thought I was and as diligent and researched as I was and, and, and the theories that I had, they were junk and I did not know what I was doing. I'd like you to talk about, to start off here, your transition between running a hedge fund uh, mm-hmm. with a billion dollars under management, and your transition to not running a hedge fund, and kind of sure. what went on in your brain, and, and what maybe prompted you to make that move? I'll tell you, Chuck, you're not alone in, in not understanding how things work, or, or, or how investments work. That's not just true for the average person, you know, off, off Wall Street, it's, it's, it's true on Wall Street as well. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, it, <laughs> we're all making it up as we go along, let me tell you that. What I really mean by that is that there is this mythology out there, and it's a very human mythology that you see in politics and well, every, every aspect of, of, of human behavior. It's this belief, and again, it is a mythology, it is a faith, it's a belief, that in terms of investing, that there is the smart money, <laughs> right? That, right. There, that there are guys who are in on the secret. And... I say guys because the, the assumption is it's always guys, right? I mean, that's the, there's no more male-dominated world than, than, than Wall Street. And this faith of this view that there's smart money out there, it's, it exists at every level of investing, you know, whether you're running a big hedge fund or whether you're you know, managing your own uh, retirement account. And if there's one message to get out of this aspect of our conversation, I'll just tell you this. There is no smart money. <laughs> there is. There, right. there, there, there really isn't. There really isn't. Now, that said, I do think that there are good ideas, just, just, just good, solid ideas for how to think about investing. And that, again, applies to whether you're managing a small investment account or whether you're managing a, a, a big hedge fund. What changed in our world is that some of those good ideas, mostly the ideas around what I would describe as discretionary investment, the ideas I describe around stock picking, those good ideas stopped working in 2009. 2008, with the big market freefall and and, and the like, ideas about stock picking still worked. You needed to be aware of the macro issues around the the great financial crisis and the, 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 the collapse in housing prices on a nationwide basis and what that meant for the banking system and the like. But you were still, I'll use a poker analogy here, you were still playing the cards. You were still evaluating fundamentals. You were still evaluating real world actions. 
even as the, the market declined in 2008. Starting in March of 2009, I'll say the, the experience at my hedge fund, this is the experience of all discretionary stock picking advisors everywhere. Not just in hedge funds, but in mutual funds, uh, again, people managing their own investments and then trying to, to pick good investments, perhaps for their, their retirement account. What you saw in, in, in all of these examples is that your returns flatlined, meaning that all of your smarts, all of your processes, all of your good ideas, and they are good ideas right. about how to identify good companies that you want to take a fractional ownership share in through the purchase of common stock and distinguishing those between with crappy companies, you know, companies that, that have a poor management team or a bad balance sheet or, you know, their, their, their earnings are, are, are not growing or stable. All of those good ideas for how to make those distinctions, they stopped working. And, and, and for us, you saw it, you know, in a hedge fund, uh, it's called a long short hedge fund, where you're both betting on companies to go up and companies to go down, you see it in its most pronounced form. What I mean by that is the idea, at least in our hedge fund, was, was really not to try to track the market, the overall market at all. The idea was you want to make money regardless of whether the market is going up or down. We had done that really successfully from when we started the, the, the fund in, in, in 04, including in 08. I mean, we had a career year in 08. With, it, with our hedge fund, you know, up, up a lot. <laughs> right. But starting in March of 2009, it's like you went to the wall and you flipped a switch on the light switch. It's not that our stock picking was negatively associated. It's not that we lost money. I'm really proud of the fact we never lost money for clients. But we sure didn't make any money. We ended up making like single-digit returns in 09, 10, and 11. And it was, it was awful. It was an awful experience. What we were doing didn't work, right? All of those ideas we had about how to look for value, how to look for catalysts, uh, you know, what companies would do better, what companies would do work, and trying to make those distinctions between individual companies, none of it worked anymore. And... What that meant for me was that what we were doing, it wasn't intellectually honest. It wasn't, like I say, we did really well for our clients and uh, I'm, I'm really proud of that. But, you know, you're charging a lot of fees and your, your commitment to your clients is that your smarts and your hard work and the good rules that you have about how to identify these, these individual stocks, it's, it's going to pay off in doing better or well or meeting the needs of your clients. And that just wasn't the case. Right? It just wasn't true. Right. So at the end of 2011, going into 2012, we made the, the, the really hard decision. And I, I, I think in some respects, my wife still hasn't forgiven me for this, but we, we gave all the money back. Right? We gave, we gave right. all the money back to clients. I would say that in retrospect, it was in a non-myopic way. Right? in seeing the big picture, what I like to call the meta game, not just, not just the game you're playing right now, but the, the game of your life and your career, as difficult as that decision was to give all the money back, 
in so many respects, it was the best decision that, that we and I ever made, right? Because you're giving the money back to your clients before you do lose their money. Right? Right. You're giving right. it back their money because you're saying, look, the important thing in this business and in, in the business of financial advising, and, and frankly, I think almost all businesses, is maintaining that reputation and having that reputation have the advantage of being true mm-hmm. <laughs> of trust with your clients, friends, colleagues, et cetera. Because we all, whatever business you're in, we're all playing the long game here. And maintaining that integrity and authenticity is the most important thing. It is, it is it's, in all of these businesses that, that we're in, your reputation is your teacup. And if you drop it and you break it, you can glue it back together and you can probably get a functional teacup again but it's always going to be a broken teacup Hmm. always and forever. If I've got one piece of advice for anyone in the investments business and frankly in now understand in any business, it is that the only thing you have to do to have a successful career in whatever field you're in is maintain that authenticity and that integrity. Even though it leads to some difficult decisions in the short term, in the long term, in the metagame, in the, the seeing the forest for the trees, it is always, always the right decision to make. So that, that was it for me, right? So we wound down the hedge fund and it, and it, it gave me an, an opportunity to start thinking, right? Because, hey, when you're managing other people's money, when you are immersed in the belly of the beast, let's call it, again, your responsibility is just that, to manage other people's money. You don't have the luxury of stepping back and thinking, okay, well, why isn't this working? Or what's, what's another way of thinking about it? You have to make money for them right now, today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it, and it also doesn't give you the, not the luxury, but the ability to start thinking about the bigger pictures about what has happened in our society, both politics and markets, so that these old good rules why aren't they working anymore? What's taking their place? And I, and I mean that both in an instrumental sense. Well, how do you make money in, a, in this, whatever's happened to our world? But then in a much deeper perspective, what the hell's going on here? Right, right. <laughs> and, and so that, that gave me the opportunity to start writing Epsilon Theory, which I think as, as, as most writers find, you're, you're trying to figure out these, these issues for yourself. And I find the most successful writing is always when I'm basically I'm, I'm writing to myself, just trying to figure this stuff out. And it was so highfalutin, you know, the first thing I wrote, I called it a manifesto. I mean, how, yeah. <laughs> how, how egomaniacal is that? I mean, right. Just, but, but, but anyway, I did. And, and you know, sent off the, the, the email and then the, you know, put it up on a website because anybody can. About 100 friends, colleagues, or people I knew. And for whatever reason, and I think it'd be good to talk about this as, as well as we kind of go through it, it, it did strike a chord so that, you know, just through word of mouth, we've got a hundred, I mean, more than a hundred thousand uh, readers and subscribers to this now. And, and I think I'm a good writer. I, I really do. I, I love it. And I, I think I'm pretty good at it, but it, the writing is only a, a small part of it. I think that there are so many, of us out there, men, women, young, old, every continent, country on, on earth, like you, Chuck, 
who are trying to figure this stuff out, that we know something is off. Something is, is, is profoundly and, and, and fundamentally off so that our, our knowledge and the old rules that are good rules, they're not working anymore. Whether it's, it's your effort with Strong Towns or, or my effort really kind of focusing on, I think, markets in particular, we're, we're trying to figure out, well, A, you know, what are the new rules? Because we, we, we've got to live in the world as it's given to us. But, but B, how do we get some of these old good ideas back? Right. <laughs> how, do, how do we get them back? Right. And, and, and that's what I admire so much about your Strong Towns effort. There's a strong kindredship in, in what we're trying to accomplish with Epsilon Theory to both see the world clearly for what it is, but then also have the courage and the, the focus to try to reclaim what has been lost. Because I do think that some important things have been lost. You talk about the long now mm-hmm. as a fiat world where we live in reality by declaration. And I think this gets to the idea of living in a narrative that you were, I think you were starting to describe there. And I'd like you to, to delve into that a little bit more because whether it's city planning or engineering, where yep. there were rules and now the rules seem to just be completely different and, and kind of bizarre. In investing, you see the same thing. And the way you've described that is a, is a narrative, is now we're living in this declarative world. I wrote down here, I felt like I'm being continually gaslighted uh, oh, yeah. by the world yeah. around me. Can you d- describe this transition or describe what you mean by a, a narrative world or a, a reality by declaration? Well, and I'll start with the markets and, and then we can talk about the, the, the larger perspective because it is something that I think exists in, you know, in, in, in every facet of human civilization, again, anywhere in the world. So it, it, in markets, what you saw, and again, it's, it's this, the crux of all this from an investment perspective is why can't you make money by working really hard doing a lot of research, following the good old principles of studying a company, investing in the companies that have got good fundamentals, strong management team, balance sheet, earnings, et cetera, et cetera, and avoid the the, the companies that don't have those things. Why, Why has that been a failed effort? And And it has absolutely been a failed effort for 11 years now, for for more than a decade. For more than a decade, stock picking, particularly what I would describe as value-oriented stock picking, but but really stock picking on on any notion of, of, of what is quality. The entire basic idea that you want to buy the good stuff and you want to avoid the bad stuff, that most fundamental idea of investment which I would argue is the investment faith that all of us grew up in, has not worked. It has, it has empirically not worked for 11 years. What has replaced it, what, what has worked, has been the, you know, as I like to call it, kind of fiat world, where you're familiar with the concept of fiat money, right? Yeah. What backs right. the the uh, the U.S. dollar, well, it's the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. It's, it's 
It's a piece of paper that the U.S. government says is worth something. And that, that, had, that has real meaning, and this is not an argument about, oh, it's just, you know, stupid or silly. Oh, I get, I get accused of that all the time. <laughs> you, when you call for reality, people are like, oh, you just want gold. And I'm like, no. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. No, that's not it. Right. It's really not it. But what it is, is that in every facet of investing, certainly, the story, what is proclaimed to be real, is, is all. It's all. Right. And, and, I, and I don't mean that in the sense that, that we're being stupid, right? Or, or that we were all, you know, fed some chemical in the drinking water that, that, that has hypnotized us. This is, is a very rational reaction, human reaction, to receiving messages from what in game theory we call missionaries, you know, people who present their opinion as fact. It's something that has been accentuated through the up and to the right movement of technology over the last 11 years. I mean, look, CNBC or, or any of the, it's true for financial news, is also true for, for, for political news. The 24-7 channels here, there is not enough fact <laughs> to, to fill the time and to sell advertising. <laughs> right, right. So, so, so what, it, what it's filled with then are people presenting their opinion, their story, as fact, as truth. And there are a million examples of this with, with the Federal Reserve. And this, again, this is not saying, oh, we've got to disband the Federal Reserve, all like that. What I'm saying is that the, the entire policy of the Federal Reserve, and this was you know, Ben Bernanke, his last speech as Fed chair, talked about this. He said, when the, the great financial crisis hit us in 08, we had a tough time on it. And that tough time was basically because we just had the toolkit of reducing short-term interest rates to zero, which we did, and that wasn't enough. So what can we do then? Well, we said, well, we'll get a second toolkit, which is going to be, you know, goes under different names. We call it quantitative easing, large-scale asset purchases. But it's basically that the, the, the Fed would use their balance sheet. They would start buying stuff, financial assets, in an effort to try to impact uh, both longer-term interest rates directly, but also expectations of longer-term interest rates, et cetera, et cetera. And so Bernanke said, well, we did this. This was, you know, we did, we did it in different rounds, QE1, which we think was a big success. I agree. This is Ben Hunt speaking. I agree. I think that what the Fed did in March 2009, I think it saved the world. I think it's what central banks are supposed to do. They're supposed to be that emergency break glass when the, everything's going to hell and, and provide that emergency shot of what we call in investment liquidity, what we'd otherwise just call money, right. that, that shot of liquidity to get the heart beating again, the heart of the, the, the global economy. But remember, he said, yeah, you know, QE2, we thought, ah, it's kind of a wash. And then QE3, we thought it was a little counterproductive. They said, but fortunately, we came up with a third toolkit. And this third toolkit is amazing what people say when they leave office, right? So this was his valedictory address, right, you know, in, in, in 2012. And it's, it's like George Washington, you know, when he leaves as, you know, no entangling alliances or, yeah. you know, Eisenhower, you know. No military like, industrial complex. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, I mean, when Dwight Eisenhower, for God's sake, is right. warning you <laughs> about the military industrial complex, that's, that's, that's pretty something. 
But but Bernanke was the same way when he when he left in 2012, and he said, we came up with this third toolkit that we call communication policy. Ilya referred to as forward guidance. Uh, you know, and they said, you know, we, we set up these committees and kind of coordinated our schedules, uh, got everyone on the same page for what we were going to say. That our words were no longer going to be our individual opinion, you know, or, or, or view of the world, but that we were going to use our words for effect, for impact, uh, for an effort to try to change investor behavior through our words. You know, what we might call lying. It'd <laughs> be less charitable, right? It, yeah, this, yeah. this feels to me a little bit like how I think part of my frustration and one of the one of the reasons why I woke up and said I don't know what's going on is that good news seemed like it would drive prices up and bad news seemed like it would drive prices up yes. and the reason was that if it's good if unemployment is down then the economy's going great you know if unemployment is up then we're going to get stimulus and the economy will be going great it was a a world where I'm like I don't I clearly don't understand what's going on. Like this doesn't make any sense anymore. Is this, is this what you mean by like the effects of, of forward guidance and of trying yeah. to, in a sense, yeah. Yeah. narrate right. our it, way it, out of this? It, 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 what Bernanke said was, you know, what we found was that third toolkit, mm-hmm. the use of our words to try to change investor behavior, it was phenomenally effective. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of the Fed's balance sheet, cheap, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah there, there are no consequences. Right? right. Yeah. And the notion of jawboning has always been out there, right? That the, sure. the, the, the Fed would try to move markets with, with their words. But what we saw really starting in, so it was actually Janet Yellen who started the, kind of the, the committee to try to use this communication policy as a formal toolkit. I think she started this in 2007. But it, it is the the effort, the, the formality, the planning that goes, that goes into it. It's a very conscious decision that in all cases, you're going to use your words to try to not reflect what you actually think, but, but you're going to choose your words to have impact on, on, on the listener. What I would say is that this is something that politicians have known forever. Forever. Right. What's different today is that everyone is in on the act. Central bankers have learned this is the way. And we can talk about, you know, Mario Draghi and his words, you know, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, right. Uh, in, the, in the summer of 2012. There are all of these examples that if you are immersed in the markets, you don't need me to give you the examples. It's, it's just what we, we get every day. But it's, it's not just central bankers who have figured out, again, what successful politicians have known for, for forever. But it's also true with uh, corporate management. So today, the, the, the hallmark of a successful CEO is not operational excellence. It's not, oh, I can put together a good team or I can motivate these individuals. No, it's can you tell a good story? Because the story is what drives the multiple. The, the story is what always is responsible for what price market participants will put on your stock. There's a, an old story, and I can't remember who it was. You may, you may know 
of the uh, the CEO that took over the company and figured out they could do three rivets instead of five on some part, and it saved them billions of dollars. And mm-hmm. and that was held up as like a great model of management. That would be so passe today, right? Like so old school. Like why bother? Why bother? Right. So so I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. So so you know my favorite counter example of this would be IBM. Right. So IBM. For whatever reason, they've had a series of, of CEOs who can't tell a good story. Can't tell a good story to save their life. What happens over time is that the entire machinery of Wall Street gets built around telling a good story as opposed to operational this or operational that. It's interesting because this, this has all happened before. So this was the same dynamic, let's call it, to markets in the 1930s. And John Maynard Keynes, you know, is a famous economist and just a brilliant economist. Genius, but, right, yeah. Right, but he, he was also a really good investor. He managed uh, the endowment for King's College at Oxford and did, did very well in, in the 1930s. And he, he writes about this, you know, in his academic books, you know, <laughs> what it's like to be an investor. He says, what we have to do is, when the fundamentals don't seem to matter, you have to do what he called these, call it kind of first level, second, third level of investing, meaning you really are being a speculator in the sense that you are listening to what other people are saying about the market and that you can think about this. There are rules to this. You know, it's not just some random thing where you can get up there and say whatever and have some impact on markets. The, CEOs, politicians, central bankers, they figured out how it works. And and it's what Keynes called the newspaper beauty contest. In modern terms, we call it the common knowledge game. But there are principles behind how one uses their words to systematically change behavior. And when you have this augmented by the always on social media, you know, the devices that we all carry around. I, I mean, I'm as addicted to it as anyone. You combine that with the 24-7 quote-unquote news channels, which are, again, this presentation of opinion as news. You put this all together against a backdrop of massive debt, of massive dislocation in the real-world economy, and you end up with what I'm describing as fiat world where it's not just money is given to us as a declaration of full faith and credit, but everything is presented to us on the basis of a declaration of, don't you believe me? <laughs> right. <laughs> Wait, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Right. right? That's the world we're in. But not only that, but you're crazy if you don't buy it, right? Like you, if, you, well, yes. if you don't believe me, you are a kook and kind of nutty. Well, what, what do you mean, Chuck? Are you, are you against democracy? Are you against <laughs> capitalism? You right. must be one of those gosh darn socialists if you right. don't, you know, toe the line. And there's another way that to think about this, though. I, what, what, I'm, what I'm writing about is I, I'm not saying fight the Fed, right? I'm not saying, oh, go, you know, live off the grid and, you know, get physical gold and bury it in your backyard. It's not what I'm saying at all. We have, to, we have to be in this world. What I'm saying, and again, this is so much of what I like about the Strong Towns effort, is we don't have to give them our heart. 
We, don't, we, we can maintain a distance of mind, an autonomy of mind, so that we see clearly what's happening. Not that, like I say, we're going to go off the grid and, you know, I want to be the grumpy grandpa yelling at clouds. Right. We're going to make our way in this world, but we're not going to be the sucker at the table. There, yeah. There's so many of, the, of these, these ideas that I think are so well captured in, you know, the sayings we have around poker, right? You know, don't just play the cards, play the player. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely the story of the last 11 years in markets. It hasn't been the cards. It hasn't been the fundamentals. It's been the players right? and, and their statements to you. They're bidding, they're bluffing, all that. Play that. But there's that other saying in poker that if you've been playing for half an hour, and you don't know who the sucker at the table is. It's you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I felt that way as well. Right. right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not that we can walk away from the table or, you know, throw our cards away and say, ah, screw all this. The important thing is not to be the sucker at the table. At the city level, when, when I deal with mm-hmm. local governments, my fellow engineers and planners, financial managers for cities, when I talk to people one-on-one, there's a pretty much an acknowledgement that these places are financially screwed. They're insolvent. They're over-indebted. They have overcommitment on pensions. They don't have the tax base uh, without, you know, a really aggressive growth annually in terms of adding new big box stores and housing subdivisions and could grow, grow, grow. They can't even cash flow their basic operations. This is a disaster. And, and the people who are running cities tend to know this. But then if you get them in groups or if you start talking to them longer, they go to this thing where they say, yeah, the federal government's not going to let us fail. They're not going to let a thousand cities across the country fail, go into bankruptcy. It creates this dissonance to me where that idea of, I'm not calling on everyone to (laughs) secede from the union and form your own country, but to think smartly about how you interact with the state government, how you interact with the federal government, what you do with the bond market. The default is kind of, well, this is the hand we're dealt. This is a game we're playing and you got to jump in and play it. I wrote down this, let me see if I can find exactly what I wrote. There's a grounded part of me that says to the city, you're totally broke. What are you thinking about doing? You know, like they come to me with a big project and I'm like, you're totally broke. How could you do this? And then there's another, the narrative part of me says, you're totally broke. Why does it matter? Like, go ahead and go ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What should we be telling people who are making real world decisions in real world places that will affect real world people when we live in a a narrative fiat world? Well, the first thing I'd say is they're right. (laughs) Right. And, and the second thing I'd say is, so what, what I believe so strongly is, is that, for a better world for our children and our grandchildren and our grandchildren's children, we, we have to make fundamental changes in the way we play the game, in the rules of the game. And that's never easy. It's never easy to walk away from a career. It's never easy to you know, give the money back in your hedge fund. It's not easy to do any of those things. And, and I understand very much that in many cases, when you walk away from something that's a luxury or that there is not an, an ability, as Kant said in uh, philosophy, ought implies can, 
right? Meaning that just say, oh, you want to do this or you want to right. do that. It implies that you can do it. And whether it's our individual lives or I think so many of the, the people you work with and local government, there is no can. This is the only game in town. It's the only poker game in town. Yeah, you know it's crooked. You know it's not a good game, but it's the only game in town. So I, I, I say you're right to the people you're talking to, particularly in, 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 in private. My belief is, is similar that, that it is impossible, again, from this, the metagame, the forest for the trees, for a national government to allow its you know, state pension funds to go bust, for uh, towns to go, uh, you know, thousands of, of city or metro governments to, to, to go bankrupt. And because it's impossible, <laughs> politically impossible, it won't happen. It won't happen. This is what we're seeing, of course, on the way that our capital markets have been transformed into political utility. This is how, why the Federal Reserve provides literally all the money in the world for you know, publicly traded companies who want to borrow money, regardless of whether they're a well-run company or a poorly run company. It doesn't matter. Right. And I think there's a very similar dynamic when it comes to government. That said, what, what is lost in these situations, and you see this in, in, in markets, with what we measure in terms of with productivity, right? So what, what's lost in this is economic growth. What's lost in this is getting more for your dollar. Why would you? You know, why, why are you going to make hard choices? Why are you going to not do X because you can't afford to do X? Why are you going to make any of these sort of hard decisions that are, in fact, entirely necessary for vibrancy? And I don't just mean economic vibrancy, although those are the terms I was using, but also social and political vibrancy. What we're seeing here is a consequence of what we're describing as being the only game in town is, let's call it the zombification not just of a market and not just of individual companies, but, yeah. of, a, but of, a, of a society. Yeah. And, and that's what I think we have to say. That's why I say, so what? Right? The consequences of this are that we have to chip away at this and find a new system of rules and behavior so that we can find an exit from this path. Let me give you an, an example. I'm working on a piece about the MTA, the Transit Authority in New York City, and they've just issued a report. They need a $10 billion immediate bailout or, you know, they're going to have to start shutting lines down in, in November and ongoing, they need multiple billions. I mean, it, the, the numbers are staggering. astounding. Yeah, they're staggering. You know, I realize New York City, huge system. But for, you know, a guy living in Minnesota where our entire DOT budget uh, for the entire state is $6 billion a year, this is money that is unfathomable in, in many right. ways. And, and you look at it and you're also dealing with like the richest real estate in the country, you know, in New York City. And the idea that this system couldn't run there. I've been on the MTA. I'm going to attest and maybe you disagree with this, but I've traveled on, on you know, transit systems all over the world. The MTA is no like luxury line. We're not getting like really high quality service for what we're doing now. It feels like a bailout is something that in many ways we have to do because if we don't do it, a whole bunch of people who have no fault of their own in a really desperate situation are going to be stuck without transit service, without a way to, to get to a place. Mm -hmm. But it feels like if we do give the bailout, that we're just like lengthening the period of time where we're going to have really junky transit service 
and not really have made any of those hard decisions to fix things. Am I looking at this correctly? And is there a way out of this? It feels like the narrative that I'm being given to is on one side, we have to do this because poor people. And on the other side is we should not do this because we need painful feedback and karma to to drive, you know, uh, innovation and change. And it seems to me like both of those are wrong. They're right, but they're also not really grasping the whole thing. Yeah. The perspective I've been approaching this from is, is less from looking at, I'll call it true public utilities. Uh, and and the, the MTA is an interesting animal, right? I mean, you don't have to go back even to as far as Robert Moses, right? To, to, to understand that, yeah, it's a public utility, right? But, but these are independent fiefdoms that, that have their own power structures and richly reward the, the people who control those power structures, right? <laughs> right, right. You know, we don't have to go back to the power broker and Robert Moses to get, to get all that. What I would say, though, is that what you're describing, I think, is even more egregious in infrastructure and the utilification of private industries. And, and in particular, you know, what I, would, what I want to focus on, because I do think it's so much a more egregious example, is the, the, the airline industry, right. Right, which is a similar you know, transportation infrastructure that is absolutely necessary for the economic commercial survival of the United States. It, it is in, in, in the same way that the MTA and its, and, its, and its transportation that it allows for the, the citizens of the, the New York City area, the greater, that greater metropolitan area, the airline industry is that for the entire United States. But what we've accomplished today, and, and, and obviously the airline industry is similarly looking for its second round of bailouts of you know, billions of dollars. But, but here, we're, we're not providing that money even to, in my example of a, a formal public utility, we're providing at these to for-profit corporations. What is most galling to me, and galling I mean in the sense of damaging to the notion of liberty and justice for all, is the way that these public utilities, the transportation system of the United States, the the air travel transportation system of the United States, has been privatized such that management, senior management, has pocketed billions of dollars across senior management, but I can go through the four CEOs and, and, you know, there are hundreds of millions in compensation for running a public utility. A utility that I, I do think should be supported, if necessary, by the U.S. government. But if it's going to be supported by the U.S. government, there, there are very specific things we can do such that that support, that public support, is not diverted to even more private gain. There is a political, not just unfairness, but, but like I say, a, a true, truly damaging dynamic that we've set up here in, in public markets writ large, right, which have been, I think, transformed into a political utility. Uh, but then these specific industries like the airlines, 
it's been, and, and look, the, what they say, what management says, and this gets to your point about, oh, it's, you know, the, the support you're described as, what, you're not going to bail them out? What are you, you're against jobs, right? Right. You, right. you want these people to be fired? Right. And no, <laughs> I, I don't. I believe very strongly that what government is for is for providing that social safety net for unemployment support, retraining, all of that. But what I am not for, and this is an example of what I mean about Fiat World, is the obfuscation of a private enrichment scheme that's been going on for decades with the language and the narrative and the words of, oh, we got to do it to save the jobs. So I'm for saving the jobs, but then there are going to be consequences for the managers who got us into this place in the first place. (laughs) One consequence being you should no longer be the manager. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. I think that that, that part of what I mean by seeing with clear eyes and yet acting with a full heart Hmm. is that, yes, when there is a war, and this is a war we're fighting against a virus, when there is this national emergency, this is what government is for. In a lot of respects, it's kind of like the only thing I think government's for. Right. It is for accomplishing things, protecting a society in ways that we cannot protect ourselves as individuals. So I am for making whatever sort of, of monetary support is necessary to see that these industries that are, in fact, crucial and irreplaceable for the the American system, right, for our lives as citizens, they should be supported. They should not be supported on the terms of the private managers who have both aided and abetted and got us into the situation in the first place. That's the distinction I'd made. Yes, provide the aid and support. B, change the rules of the system because you now have the opportunity to do that. Right. I don't want to end without asking you about housing because housing is kind of the thing to me that is, uh, is deepest in the narrative. It's the thing that most people are dealing with that is intersects with the fiat world the most. I like to tell people and point out, you know, in, from 2000 to 2008, if, if we I'll put a chart up on the, the screen and I'll have a room of a few hundred people and I'll say, everybody at the same time, this was considered a housing what? And they will say, bubble. And you show the line with the housing going way up. And then I'll reveal like from 2008 to present and it will drop a little bit and then it will go up even higher. And I'm like, okay, 2010 to 2020 is a what? Housing? And they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, recovery, right? It's a, it's a recovery. I look at housing prices today and the narrative about, well, cities are great places and people want to own homes and interest rates have never been lower. And I, I look at all these narratives we tell ourselves to justify paying not four times earnings not five times earnings, some places six, seven, eight times price to earnings ratio for houses. I don't see, and I think the thing that I struggle with is I don't see a way this resolves because, you know, as Bernanke said in 2008, the U.S. economy is the housing market. How does this ever get to an equilibrium point where it's not narrative driven, where it's actually fundamentals driven? 
and have us be okay at the other end of that. I think that's what I go to bed at night going, I, I, don't, see how to, I don't see how this ever resolves. So how do we look at the housing market today in a narrative sense and understand what is going on and position ourselves to where we can live with it? What I'd say, Chuck, is it's always been narratives. <laughs> it's, it's, it's narratives all along. I'll, I'll come back on this question of housing, but let me kind of talk about you know, you mentioned the word, you know, price to earnings, right? Right. And which is one of those, those key metrics that we, that we talk about in, in, in markets. You know, what price are you willing to pay for X? What exists in the real world are cash flows, um, earnings, or, you know, the, the actual money, the actual operational efforts of a, of a, of a company or, or, or what have you. The entire business of Wall Street, the entire construction of Wall Street, from the banks to the CNBC to the Wall Street Journal, all of it is the creation of a story to say you need a multiple on those cash flows. And to pay a multiple, to pay more than $1 for a dollar of cash flow today, there's got to be a story. There's got to be a story, just a story that, yeah, well, it's going to be $2 next year or that $1, you're going to get that for the next 20 years and ain't that great. When, when you pay a dollar today, you know, I'll gladly pay you tomorrow for a hamburger today. Popeye Wimpy, person, right. right. Yeah. All of Wall Street, all of it is based on the idea of creating a story so that you will pay some multiple of the real world cash flow thing. It's always been this way. This is not something that just came up in the last 10 years. What we've seen in the last 10 years is the adoption of, I'll call it the Wall Street principle from everywhere, every walk of life, every walk of life, and it works. It particularly works because of our changes in technology and, and the, the, the levels of debt that require story, more and more story, just to, just to, to make any sort of, of, of coherent. So when you say, you know, when is this going to change? You know, my response to you is, is going to be, hey, it's always been this way. There's always been a story, you know, ar- ar- around, you know, housing prices. But, but I, yeah. let, me, let me ask this, just so I understand yeah. what you're saying. Isn't the fact that, you know, if we go back decades, Wall Street's always had a story, isn't part of what made Wall Street work was that that story eventually had to intersect with reality and there would be bubbles and bursts and, and, and ups and downs. And, uh, you know, someone who was wise about what they were doing uh, would be able to see when the story got too far out of alignment with reality and basically make money off of that. Or, or that was the mechanism of correction. Am I? Yes. Okay. And so, so, so it, what, 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 I, what has changed, and this, is, this has also been a policy change, right, mm-hmm. is, again, going this back notion of, of capital markets being transformed into political utility. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, the, the quote I like to use is, is after World War I, the famous quote by the, the French president was that, that war is too important to be left to the generals. So this, of course, what it's describing is the idea that, 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 that fighting, that, that war fighting is now going to be up to the politicians 
right, to decide when and how this happens, that we're not going to leave it to the generals. And I believe very strongly exactly the same way that the, the new philosophy is that markets, capital markets, and housing markets, they're too important to be left to the investors. <laughs> right? They're right. too important. Meaning that, that you, you, you said it, the entire U.S. economy is the housing market. The, the, when, when you think about, you know, what is, and Trump is just saying out loud, you know, what, what, what other presidents absolutely said, the stock market is his report card. Right. It is, again, ought implies can. Ought we allow, you know, prices to go up and down? Well, that implies can. And if you believe that your political survival is at stake, then there is no can, right? I can do a Yoda quote here. There, you know, there. What, no what, try, right? There's, there's no try. There's only do. Right. And, and, and so what's going to happen is that capital markets will be treated as a political utility where they may not go up a lot. We may have a zombification of the real world economy as a result, but we're not going to allow those kind of crashes. The lesson of 2008 was very simple. Never again. Never again. And that has all sorts of, I think, really damaging and sad ramifications, both for you and me, Chuck, but even more so for our children and grandchildren. But that was the lesson. We are never going to allow a nationwide collapse in home prices to happen again. That will allow other things, bad things to happen, but that ain't going to happen. It's off the table. Right. Yep. Let me ask you to elaborate on two things real quick. The the first one is the the idea of a public utility. And and I I believe you're saying is just, it's just going to be managed to remove volatility. Is that kind of what you mean by the markets as, as, uh, that's exactly what I mean. That's exactly what you see. That's, that's the federal reserves. Now, only real mandate is right. to prevent a sharp decline in financial asset prices. Mm. Period. End of story. That's their job. Right. Then the next one is the zombification. And I get what you mean because I, I feel like it's the zombification that, that is so distressing to me because yes. at yeah. the city level, uh, we're building frontage roads and big box stores instead of sidewalks and trees. Yep. Sidewalks and trees are low cost high return, high quality of life investments, but it's not what's in the, it's not what's in the, the, the table. It's, we've, we've turned our cities into zombies because they just do the same dumb thing over and over. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, am I getting that right? Am I getting the gist of what you're after? You're getting exactly right. We're, we're, we're all a casino now, right? You know, and, and, and the zombification, and this is what I, I, I think you're saying it drives you nuts because it drives me nuts. It's, it, it's also the zombification of our own autonomy, our, our political autonomy and will. Right. And, and what I would say, though, and this is, again, why I admire your effort so much, is that you're not going to fix this from the top down. Mm-hmm. Every top-down entity, they, they've all got the memo right? that, this is, that this is the way to, to keep the long now going, to, to pull forward the future and to, frankly, rewrite the past so that all that exists is this endless present. That's, that, that's all that exists. How do you break it? you got to break it from the bottom up. It's, it, it's bird by bird. It's 
city council by city council. It's finding this, this community of truth seekers who are trying to figure this stuff out because that's, that, that has been the uplifting part and what keeps me going in this effort is that I've met and, and, and come across, you know, ten, like I say, there are so many of us. Yes. You know, yes. Young, old, men, women, white, black, it doesn't, you know, right, right. Every country, there are thousands of us. We just don't know we're there, right? I, I, I mean, and so, so, so whether it's a strong towns, whether it's epsilon theory, finding ways to create, in $10 word, epistemic communities, finding ways for people who care and are trying to figure this stuff out to connect. This, this is how the world's going to change. It's absolutely how the world's going to change. Let me ask you about the pack. I feel like part of where I was before Strong Towns and part of where I was before I found my pack, before I started to talk and, and, and found people who, you know, were interested in this stuff the way I was, this bottom-up revolution, before I found Epsilon Theory and, and, and your dialogue and your conversation, I felt like my options were to either, you know, be a rhinoceros, to, to, to live in this uh, fiat world and kind of just pretend it didn't exist. Yep. Or pray for collapse, pray for like everything to fall apart and go to, go to hell so that we can start rebuilding. And both of those made me feel crazy. Like I was crazy. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about the, the pack as an alternative to that? Absolutely. There is a third way. And this has been the way throughout history. What's frustrating is that this is playing a very long game. Right? This is a game of a social movement. This is not the game of, oh, we're going to start a political party or, oh, we're going to take up arms against a warring state. Right? That, 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 that's not it. It is absolutely from the bottom up. For most people, it starts with your family, right? And then maybe you can extend it to your friends. It is finding people. And this, this, is, this is all it is. So, so here's, this is so important. It's finding people who do not treat you as a means to an end, but who treat you as an autonomous human being. We have different views, we have different philosophies, political philosophies, whatever, but we can have a conversation in good faith with each other because we're not treating each other as a means to an end. That is not true of your company, that is not true of your political party, that is not true of of any of our so-called leaders. They're all treating you as a means to an end. What is the pact? It is a group for which we will make sacrifice for each other. It's a group where at this very fundamental level, we treat each other as autonomous human beings, not as a means to an end. Find that group. Find that group. That's how you make it through these times. I had... uh Eight, nine questions. I think we got to three. <laughs> so let's. Um, we'll come back. I'll come back sometime, Chuck. Anytime. I would, I would love that. Let's let's do that. You know, it's 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 one of these things where it's been a long time that I've wanted to chat with you and put it off, and that was my mistake. So let's do this again sometime soon. Absolutely. The blog is Epsilon Theory. I didn't even get to ask you about PPE. Do you take just a minute and tell me about? I I, I want people to hear what your pack was part of. Well, I'd love to, and, and we're still doing this. So yes. starting in March, we were very frustrated 
with the distribution of N95 and N95 equivalent masks to our, what we call our frontline heroes, to uh, healthcare workers, first responders, uh, emergency workers, doctors, nurses, clinicians, you know, they, they were not getting the armor that they need because we don't just have a trickle-down economy in the United States. We have trickle-down PPE as well. So we, we, we were determined not to compete with, you know, the federal government and state emergency authorities, but we also weren't going to wait. Uh, so we set up what we like to call an underground railroad of PPE where we, you know, we were first getting, you know, individual shipments of, you know, 100 or 200 masks, a lot of them from, from China, which we had to do in these kind of like a real underground railroad, uh, to get them here and then distribute them not to big warehouses or hospital systems, but to get them directly into the hands, the doctors, the nurses, the EMTs, the fire departments, the, the, the people on the ground, the heroes on the ground who needed this equipment immediately and could distribute to their teams. So if you want to go to the Epsilon Theory site, if you are a frontline hero, you know, a healthcare worker, a first responder who needs N95 masks, we've got a form there and we'll send it to you. We're not, we don't send out a thousand masks at a time. We send out a hundred masks at a time. But to date, we have distributed over 160,000 N95 masks to over 1,200 clinics, fire departments, police departments, prisons, social work, directly to the individuals who need them. We had so many generous people, you know, fund us really generously to, to buy this equipment. This is what gives me such great hope that, you know, I, from this bottom-up level, from, from a level of just individual human beings looking to help other human beings, we got this and we can do it. So, again, we, we, we send out, you know, about, unfortunately, 3,000, 4,000 masks every week still. Uh, it's just this, this totally bottoms-up grassroots effort. But there are, are so many ways for, for all of us to, 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 to help our fellow citizens in this, in this sort of way. To me, this is, so, what, um, this is what having a pack is all about, right? Exactly. Yeah. Ben Hunt, Epsilon Theory, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Chuck. Anytime. We'll talk again soon. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, the city! The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.